according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me this morning in Proverbs 21. Proverbs 21, I think uh, last week we finished up the last of what we're going to deal with in verse 16, talking about the assembly of the wicked, or the assembly of the dead, rather, the Raphaim that we've been looking at, the giants that become the demons, that become the departed spirits, as uh, we have them portrayed through the Old Testament. And uh, we're ready now for verse 17 and beyond. Before we do get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time in His Word. Shall we pray? Good morning, Heavenly Father. We do thank You for this new day. We thank You for the blessings we have to assemble together. And we call upon Your blessing, Father, the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, to open our eyes, to open our ears, to soften our hearts. We thank you and we praise you for this truth on this day. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, so this is, by the way, this is our 299th class in the book of Proverbs. So we're one week away from, from class 300. There aren't many series that cross 300 lessons, and it's kind of interesting that uh, we probably got another oh, eight or nine years to go, I think, maybe to get through the final 11 chapters. But anyway, or 10 chapters. Let's look at... Uh, where we were a week ago, because we were talking about the assembly of the wicked. There's a number of things here in verses 15, 16, 17 that address this. So um, starting with verse 15, I guess, which was uh, point 12 in the outline as the exercise of justice. Proverbs 21, 15 says, the exercise of justice is joy for the righteous, but is terror to the workers of iniquity. And like so many other passages through Proverbs, we're contrasting believers and unbelievers, but we're doing so with a bigger context related to um, worldviews, related to uh, philosophical outlooks on life and on the world we live in and so forth. You know, justice as an element of God and a characteristic of God's uh, attributes and essence is, is one thing, but when it's portrayed in our culture, when it's exercised, when it's manifest in our society... We love it. We eat that up and we resonate with that because, of course, we love God. We love His nature. We love His Word. For the unbeliever, though, when they see absolute righteousness and justice exhibited on display, they recoil. That's not their existence. That's not their nature. They are children of darkness and they don't come to the light. And so when God's essence is reflected in public life, if you have a mayor or a governor or a president, if you have a governing authorities over you that are reflecting God's absolute standard of justice, then like I say, we love that, but the, uh, the unbeliever hates it. It's a terror to them. It is a joy for believers and a terror to those who are still under eternal condemnation. Remember, this is what the unbeliever is born into. And, and this fallen world is, is what the, uh, you know, through physical birth, you enter into uh, this fallen world and you need to be saved out of it. You need to be redeemed to have that new life in Christ. So anyway, there's important principles there. And likewise, I think when we get into this issue with fallen humanity and what's being expressed in verse 16, <laughs> I still haven't fixed that typo. It's Proverbs 21, 16. As we look at a man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. 
And so, yes, this is the destiny of what they have to look forward to is eternal separation in the lake of fire. But even prior to that, while they're still here on this earth, while they're still on the road to hell, as we say, that uh, they are uh, functioning within this realm, that they're already in the assembly of the Raphaim. They're already in this realm of, of uh, fallen angelity. And so we took the time to understand what the Kohel, the Kohel Raphaim is, or in the Greek it's the Synagogue Gigantum, the synagogue of the giants, as uh, the Septuagint rendered this passage. So many more things. I would uh, encourage us, I'm not going to delve back into it again this morning because we spent a couple Wednesdays on it already, but what is Raphaim? When you're looking at the Hebrew term Raphaim, because in about half the passages they appear to be embodied, they appear to have physical bodies and they're bodies of great size. In fact, they're giants. They are parallel to Anakim and to Nephilim, or the Raphaim, plus a few other terms that uh, are connected there related to the Emim and the Zanzumim and the expressions there. But then another group of passages, again about half of them, Raphaim don't have bodies. They're disembodied. And so they are spirits or they are shades. Sometimes they're called departed spirits or the shades. And uh, as departed ones that are residents of Sheol, they are residents of the underworld and Abaddon is their their king or their lord. Um, I think we we can uh, relate those to the angelic studies that we've done in times past as well. And uh, so my theory is, here's my theory, is that Raphaim are Raphaim, whether they're embodied or disembodied. The only difference is while they're embodied, they are the Nephilim offspring of angels and human women. And then when they die, they can't go to heaven. They can't go to hell technically. I mean, they're not in Adam. They're not subject to Adam's lost estate, but they are uh, the offspring of of fallen angels and their lost estate. And uh, so where do they go? And uh, what is this... uh, what is this uh, bottomless pit and this abyss that they dwell in and how do they keep sneaking out and how do they then become these roaming demons that want to, uh, want to embody themselves in people or animals or things of that nature. So anyway, there's, there's more to be done on that and I think um, if you want to do more reading on that you can. I do recommend if you read Biblical, uh, Biblical Demonology by Merrill Unger Make sure you get one of the earlier editions because he was really awesome on this, I think, in his early editions. And then towards the end of his life, he kind of changed some of his thinking and he updated it. And, and most of the current editions of Merrill Unger do not reflect this as the origin of the demons or, um, or issues connected with that. Anyway, so we get past that and we're ready now for Loving Pleasure. Proverbs 22, I'm sorry, 21:17. He who loves pleasure will become a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not become rich. And so we have a principle here that applies in general to all of uh, humanity uh, related to uh, the consequences for profligate living, the, co- the consequences for being the prodigal. Um, nothing wrong with pleasure. As God provides it, we enjoy it. Nothing wrong with wine as in, in moderation and in, in keeping with God's design. We enjoy it. The problem is, is that sin comes along and perverts what God designs and then uh, we uh, end up in our addictive natures to idolize different things and abuse them. And uh, this becomes a problem as well. So here's the point under point 14. Loving pleasure misses the point. I think we all love or we all experience pleasure we can appreciate pleasure. Pleasure is better than uh, no pleasure or lack of pleasure. 
Um, but we want to not be off target related to why did God design pleasure in the first place? And don't miss the point. We should love the God who defines pleasure and uh, provides for His own good pleasure. So if God has given us all things to enjoy, if God has given us things for our pleasure, for His good pleasure, well then rejoice accordingly and uh, experience the pleasure, appreciate it, uh, celebrate it, give God the glory for it, but don't turn that experience into the, uh, into the idol. Don't turn that experience into the thing that you love in, uh, in all of this. And this, this holds true, by the way, for every pleasure we can imagine. This holds true for sexual pleasures, for food pleasures, for um, pleasures in life, for uh, anything that we can think of as a pleasure of human experience. Don't idolize it. And don't love the pleasure for its own sake. Because that then turns into a, uh, an addiction. That then turns to something that you have to repeat over and over and over again with more and more to, uh, to feed your addiction. No, we should love the God who defines pleasure. Because what does it mean to be pleasurable? <laughs> and some of these too. I mean, you think, um, how lost have we become as a culture that we have to stop and define every word that we're talking about because the world has redefined these things and uh, abuse them in the process. So we're going to look at uh, these verses here, but I think just for the moment, let's stop and ask ourselves, what is pleasure? You know, what pleases? What displeases? What, um, you know, in, in a sense of aesthetics, in the sense of, of good or bad, you know, there are pleasing sounds and unpleasing sounds. There are pleasant aromas and uh, unpleasant aromas. Um, pleasant taste, unpleasant taste, all of these things with, that are connected to our senses, connected to our thinking, our emotions. And so the idea of a stimulus that we are either pleased by or displeased by is, is a joy. Thank you, God, for designing us with this capacity. Thank you for giving us uh, a sense of taste uh, with, that can differentiate between different things, a sense of smell, a sense of all of the the privileges that we have to be able to, um, to appreciate beauty, that we can see uh, beauty, we can see in creation, we can see, we were talking about Sunday, you know, the, the, the beauty on the snowfall and to see white covering the ground and to see there's a beauty in that and we can appreciate that and then we can appreciate it when it goes away <laughs> and we have dry roads again and there's, uh, you know, there's, there's a beauty in the variety, there's a beauty in all kinds of things and there's also ugliness. All right, there's ugliness in this world. And so the things that we see that are ugly, the things that we smell that are ugly, the things that we taste that are ugly, nasty. So the idea of pleasure is a part of um, what God has designed. And I don't know, I mean, I guess, is this limited to humanity? Is there, a, animals I guess have a finite capacity to, to, uh, to feel safe or to feel... Um, you know, scared, they can be afraid, or they can feel loved and that. But, you know, how much pleasure do they truly take? You know, I know they're not uh, taking pleasure in the, the delights of Bible doctrine and the fellowship in God's Word, and the, that's what we're supposed to de derive our pleasure with. And so hopefully these things will become clear. Because if you get off target in the will of God, and if instead of loving God, you love the pleasure God sends, 
then your, your love is misdirected and you start to blame God when he, uh, when he turns off the pleasure. You know, if the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but you're craving the pleasure, what are you going to do when the Lord takes away? Are you going to be like Job? Are you going to be like Job's wife? You know, uh, how are we going to respond by faith if uh, we find ourselves facing unpleasurable days? Um, he's still the same God. And so I think these principles become clear. If we're going to worship the pleasure instead of worshiping the God who supplies pleasure, we're off target. And, and then I think we put ourselves in the Ecclesiastes worldview. And this is what Solomon went to in his darkness when he allowed the, uh, many wives to mislead him. And so we have the book of Ecclesiastes, which is, you know, what happens if a believer tries to write Proverbs but he's out of fellowship? <laughs> what happens if our perspective is worldly because we're not keeping our eyes fixed on, on the Lord? So Ecclesiastes is the book of human viewpoint. And I rejoice that God the Holy Spirit allowed for it to be written and allowed and inspired it so as to place it in the canon of Scripture. And we can, with discernment, we can read Ecclesiastes and we can, you know, adapt it and, and, and read between the lines and see, all right, now if I was in fellowship, what would I think about this verse kind of a thing? And, and Solomon describes his process here. Ecclesiastes 2.1, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself, and behold, it too was futility. Keep in mind, Solomon was the richest man of his day, maybe the richest man to ever live, if you adjust the income for current dollars and whatnot. And, um, you know, whatever pleasure that money could buy, he had it. And, uh, and uh, you know, more than we'll ever be able to afford. And yet, what does he find? What is that pleasure producing? The best food, the best wine, the best women. I mean, anything else he wanted, he could have it. And it was futility, emptiness, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I said of laughter, it is madness. And of pleasure, what does it accomplish? What does it accomplish? And so I take this principle and I think, you know what, this is, what, this is truly what happens when a believer, Solomon is saved, Solomon has God's wisdom, but he perverts it, like Satan perverted his wisdom. And, and, and perverted wisdom, I think, is worse than no wisdom at all. I think it's, it's uh, you're down a tragic path where you should know better, and, uh, and now you're facing these consequences. So uh, saying of laughter, what are the things you find funny? What are the things you find amusing? What are the things that, why do we even have a sense of humor anyway? <laughs> why did God design us to laugh? Well, God laughs. God finds a lot of things funny. And because uh, he who sits in the heavens laughs. So, um, you know, there's a time for that. We've got to understand it. Uh, we can't live for the laugh seven days a week or every day of our life. There's a time to laugh and a time to weep. Um, but are you, uh, you know, is life all about just laughing all the time every day? No, there's some days there's nothing to laugh about. It's madness. And then a pleasure, what does it accomplish? And that right there might be the best principle of all that we glean out of this and try to, you know, redeem Ecclesiastes with a, a divine viewpoint to application. Um, what does it accomplish? There's a question for you. So, okay, I had fun. Yes, it was pleasurable. Wow. You know, it was a great meal. I enjoyed it. But not every meal is going to be like that. Or it was a great day, you know, because of the entertainment or whatever we did. It was a thrilling Scrabble victory. Hooray. Well, I'm probably going to lose the next one. All right? I mean, do I have to, how do you build on it? How do you build on it? You know, what happens with the letdown? 
you know, when the Super Bowl team doesn't repeat the next year. Or what, you know, so any pleasure or the, the thrill of, of, a, of a, you know, people that derive um, different pleasures. Well, I'm going to get past that. <laughs> There's sexual pleasures. Well, you can't, can't do that 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And, and what do you do? So there is a pleasure. You accept it. You thank God for it. But then what does it accomplish? Now we stop and ask ourselves, wait a minute, I'm here to accomplish things. God put me in this world and He saved me. In fact, He prepared good works. They were prepared beforehand that I should walk in them. And I've got to accomplish those before I depart through physical death or rapture. And so if I've got a, a bucket list, I've got a list of things that, I'm, that God expects me to have done while I'm here, um, is, is pleasure you know, is that what's been assigned for me to just experience as much pleasure as I possibly can? Or are the pleasures He provides, the bonuses, the pleasures He provides along the way are the special blessings in time that, that we can appreciate and we can experience and we can thank Him for and, um, and we're, we're, we're delighted, everyone that comes along down the road, uh, but, but they're kind of the side, the side issue, they're the, the extra credit. They're not the things I'm called to do, if that makes sense. All right. Other principles here on pleasure. It's curious to me how Paul adapted so much of this in his pastoral correspondence. And so in First and Second Timothy in particular, and it's really interesting because here's the old man telling the young man what to expect in, uh, in the ministry. In, uh, of course, Timothy was his protege, was his disciple, and he had trained him and had left him in Ephesus to, to pastor the church at Ephesus. And uh, in uh, both First and Second Timothy, he talks about wealth and he talks about money and pleasure and these things so that we have the right perspective in the ministry. And this is key because I think, uh, and of course we talk about it with the men that we train, and you know, uh, if you're maladjusted to God's program for finances, uh, you could be not only destroying yourself but wrecking a whole congregation while you're at it. So 1 Timothy 5, various instructions here. Um, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers. Good uh, tips here for the young pastor in his first pulpit. Uh, To the older women as mothers, the younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are widows indeed. And this is uh, particularly critical. We uh, discuss this uh, amongst our deacons and our meetings. Uh, related to um, the folks that we're dealing with here. You know, Linty and others that we're talking about because uh, they are not just widows, but widows indeed. If a widow has any children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family to make some return to their parents for this is acceptable in the sight of God. And so for our older members here at Austin Bible Church, if they've got kids and grandkids, if they've got family around, particularly if they're believers, if they're saved, uh, you know, uh, I, I relax more. I, uh, I'm, I'm happy to have them and I pray for them and, and uh, whatever assistance the church can provide, we're going to be you know, secondary to what the, the children are doing and grandchildren are doing. We're not stepping on toes. We're not telling, uh, telling these folks what to do. But we're uh, pleased to come alongside and help in, uh, in whatever way. But she who is a widow indeed who has been left alone, what if she doesn't have children or grandchildren? Or what if she never married? You know, what if uh, in, in, in those cases? 
um, a widow indeed. Or what if she has children, but they're not saved? And they're uh, satanic in their thinking and, and wrapped up in worldly things. It, it hits me pretty hard when I look at the, the crucifixion and Jesus gives Mary to the Apostle John. And even though he's got plenty of brothers, he's got James and Jude and sisters and brothers, and, but they're not saved yet. They don't get saved until after the resurrection. And I think that's very significant that he uh, does not entrust his widowed mother to uh, his unbelieving brothers. But uh, to his nephew, to his cousin, it says here, to the Apostle John, you're saved and you're young, take care of my mother. And that's, uh, that weighs a lot on my thinking. But she is a widow indeed who has been left alone and has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. And he realized that in that aloneness that, uh, that she has the opportunity to serve. In fact, there's a uh, real open-door opportunity there to become one of the greatest prayer warriors and to uh, serve the church, to encourage the younger women and all these things. Anyway, so yes, Austin Bible Church is committed and we've got a, um, a deacon uh, group that shares in my priorities related to this, to our widows and our widows indeed. All right. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. And this is interesting too because this, this wanton pleasure, we think, well, that all ends when, uh, you know, when you get a little bit older and, and whatnot. Like when the scripture says, flee youthful lusts. And uh, I asked Ralph about that. I said, well, you know what, does that change when you get older? He says, no, it seems about the same as when, <laughs> you know, the older lusts are the same as the youthful lusts. And the wanton pleasures and, uh, and so forth. You know, just because we're older, we're still, uh, we still have sin natures. We still have uh, fallen bodies in a fallen world. And our sin nature uh, is very good at what it does and it gets better all the time. And the sin nature knows uh, how to push our buttons because it, they, it's been pushing our buttons all this time anyway. And it just gets better and better at pushing our buttons the, uh, the longer we live in these fallen bodies. So uh, if you're waiting to uh, outgrow physically uh, in, in age some of these things that have been besetting you, uh, it's, the passing of time and age is not necessarily going to do that. It's going to be the Word of God that transforms your thinking. It's going to be the doctrine that renews you in the spirit of your mind. You still have the physical things, but you can handle it better with the Word of God. Anyway, so uh, this is the first glimpse of it there. We get down into chapter 6. So here we go. Let me get to the rest of this here. The widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, that is, having been a one-man woman, in other words, uh, faithful, having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, if she has devoted herself to every good work. So, man, there's a candidate. I mean, there's a, a prime candidate for this, this role, this ministry that she would have as an older woman, as a widow in the church. So put her on the list. The list is that, the list for support, the list for encouragement, the list for provision. She's got a full-time ministry there. But refuse to put younger widows on the list for when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married. So they kind of regret, ooh, I'm serving in this office when they want to get married. Anyway, yeah, you don't want them to set aside a pledge. 
any issues there. Yeah, younger widows get married, bear children, keep house, give the enemy no occasion for reproach. That's what my sister did. She was 29 years old and widowed, so she remarried. And praise God for that, that he provided for her. All right, and then there's dependent widows. Yeah, you think about Naomi and Ruth, and there's Naomi and she had, and Orpah, so she had two uh, daughters-in-law, and all three of them were widows. So this can happen. So she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened, so that they so it may assist those who are widows indeed. And there it is again. And so this this talks about it's not a burden for the church that we we want to support those that we're called to support. But at the same time, we need to be have discernment, and we need to prioritize, and we need to evaluate whether, in fact, the, the widow is, is a widow indeed, or whether there's family that should be the primary um, first, uh, first responders, or <laughs> that's probably not right, but the primary caregivers in, uh, in that way. All right. And elders, now let's get down through chapter 5 and get into chapter 6. All right. And in these early verses here in chapter 6, there's the warnings about false teachers, including some of these folks that are um, they're manipulating people financially. They think that uh, godliness is a means of gain. If anyone advocates a different doctrine that does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with a doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing but has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. All right, so now we get from that warning about false teachers and now he brings in the money aspect of it because some of these guys are just, they're, they're manipulating folks for the money. And, uh, and if you have a a spiritual ministry, and you're uh, you're teaching the word of God, and and people come to uh, to uh, to trust what you tell them. They can be very vulnerable to be led down a path, and to uh, especially if they're in a, in a tough place, and and you're there to encourage them. They can be very uh, vulnerable to manipulation, and these hucksters can come along and just milk them for every nickel they got. They suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Now this is the principle, I'm going to start to tie it back in with with the idea of pleasure. Nothing wrong with pleasure. Pleasure is fun, by definition. But we want to to make sure that we're we're not separating pleasure from the source of pleasure. That we're uh, uh, we're not forgetting the God that supplies this pleasure. And the contentment is critical to recognize uh, the um, <laughs> enough is enough, right? So uh, you, uh, you have a great vacation, you go to Disney, you go to Harry Potter World, you ride the roller coasters, you spend, I mean, it's fun, but can we be content and say, okay, uh, time to go home now, back to work, back to the real world. Maybe, uh, you know, we'll do that again someday. But the problem is when you lose that idea of contentment, then it's just 
nonstop. I need more, 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 more. It's got to be constant pleasure or constant money or constant what have you. For we have brought nothing into the world so we cannot take anything out of it either. Good perspective on the money you make while you're here. If we have food and covering with these we shall be content. So we have the contentment which is what is our need? What is the minimum? What is the um, you know, beyond which anything beyond which is, is extra, beyond which is just wealth, is, uh, is riches as God supplies them. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And I think this, is, this comes very well into this issue of pleasure. If you love pleasure, if you love wine, if you love, as we see here, uh, oil, in other words, you're now desiring to have these luxuries. You're desiring to have the, the manifestation of what riches can, can purchase. And um, it's gonna have, we're going to get to it again also, by the way, here in Proverbs 21, and not only in verse 17, but if you glance down, you're going to see more of it in verse 20. So these principles that we're gleaning today will come back and benefit us in just a few short verses. But wanting to get rich, loving wine, loving pleasures. Stop and ask yourself, why is this my desire? Why is this my goal? Because there's a snare in that. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and sung by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And so if Proverbs is talking about the love of pleasure, the love of uh, wine, the love of oil, this is the parallel in 1 Timothy, the love of money. What Do we love money? Or do we love the God that provides for us faithfully? I mean, we need it. Money's useful. Um, you know, if you don't have money, what are you going to eat with? How are you going to provide uh, for your family? He knows we need it. And we love the God who provides it. But to love money itself, that's a snare. Be careful. And we see the issue there. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. So that, um, you know, keep first things first. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Get down to verse 17. See, notice. Yeah. In verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And this, I think, sums it up because this gives us the right perspective that, uh, you know, we didn't seek to be rich, we didn't strive to be rich, we didn't set it out as our goal to be rich. And, and what's the point of being rich? You know, do you want to be on a list somewhere? Do you want to uh, make the Forbes top 10 list? I mean, what's the whole point? Why do we make money? Why do we have money? And some of this too is going to be um, coming up related to being productive and accumulating uh, the excess of that productivity. Then what do we do with the accumulated excess? We sit around like Scrooge McDuck and rub our hands and roll around in the money and, and celebrate how rich we are. What's the point in having the piles of gold, silver, and precious stones here on earth when we should be storing up the gold, silver, precious stones in heaven. What is the purpose for the abundance? So this verse highlights it for us. Um, don't allow it to puff you up or be conceited. 
the, uh, our hope is not fixed on riches because riches are uncertain. Our hope is fixed on God. And say, Father, you're the one that supplied this. And what would you have for me to do with this? Richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So we enjoy. We enjoy what he provides. All right? And, uh, but we don't forget that he's the one that provided it. And he gives, he can take away. We want to have his, his uh, perspective on these things. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And in particular in the church age we have the spiritual gift of giving. And the spiritual gift of giving is, is uh, much more attitudinal than, um, than the precise quantity of, uh, of dollars in the bank account. Because uh, you, you may not have, you may not be in the greatest tax bracket, but you have the riches in the, in the spiritual gift of giving in a mental attitude. When the widow gave her two mites, she was giving more than uh, all the rich people there put together. Anyway, be good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. And uh, these are the issues here. In any event, perspective. If you're going to enjoy a pleasure, then enjoy the God that supplied the pleasure. And don't forget where the source comes from in all of this. The last warning that Paul gives in this is in 2 Timothy 3, 4. Welcome to uh, 2021 in America. Not that it's new to this year, it's been like this for some time. Realize this, in the last days difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self. Okay, That's our culture. All about us. All about me. Everything is uh, my, uh, me, myself, and I. Lovers of self. Lovers of money. Boastful. Arrogant. Revilers. Disobedient to parents. Ungrateful. Unholy. Unloving. Irreconcilable. Malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. How about that for a description? Take this verse, connect it back with Proverbs 21. When it says, he who loves pleasure will become a poor man. Because when you love the pleasure, you just made that an idol. It's lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It's like you cannot serve God and mammon. One or the other. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. And I tell you, this is exactly what the um, prosperity preachers are guilty of. This is exactly what the, the whole health, wealth, and prosperity false gospel message centers on. The, lo the, the lovers of pleasure. Your best life now. God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be healthy and all this stuff. And so they buy, people buy into it and then they start having fun and start enjoying all these pleasures. I think everything's great until that train ride stops. And then, then what? Then they start to think there's something wrong with them. Anyway, it's a horrible, horrible addiction. Avoid such men as these. Because yeah, that's not the power from the Word of God. All right, well, let's get back to Proverbs. He who loves pleasure will become a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not become rich. And uh, if you think about it, the, uh, 
the eternal estate and uh, the poverty that results because uh, you didn't redeem the time here on this earth to lay up the, the treasures in heaven. And so, you know, you get to heaven and you find out you've got nothing on deposit. You find out that, yes, you have eternal life and a resurrection body and a home prepared for you, but it's a very modest home. And uh, the, uh, the, uh, the wealth assets that uh, could have been laid up in heaven were not laid up in heaven. And so it's not there waiting for you when you get there. How sad is that? All right, now we've got a puzzle. Verse 18. The wicked is a ransom for the righteous, and the treacherous is in the place of the upright. The wicked is a ransom for the righteous, and the treacherous is in the place of the upright. All right, well, here's a puzzle. <laughs> and it uses language that we like. Proverbs 21.18 spotlights a critical dual principle in Scripture. In fact, if we could just introduce these principles and leave the wicked out of it, we'd do much better with this verse. But there's a twin principle, what I call a dual principle, the tandem of ransom and substitution. We love those concepts, ransom and substitution. Because the, the, when we bring up uh, terms like this into the discussion, we're talking, we're talking our salvation, we're talking our experience. Jesus paid our ransom. We've been redeemed from the slave market of sin. He's our redeemer. He paid the ransom. And substitution, he took our place. He was wounded for our transgressions. Our iniquities were cast upon him. He wasn't guilty. We're the guilty ones. And so when, when, when these, these themes come across, and they are a tandem, they are, they are dual principles, you can't separate, I mean you can, but we com Scripture commonly links together then the principle of penal substitution, penal substitutionary atonement, the, the, the fact that Jesus paid the price in our place. And so as a fundamental doctrine, uh, we all relate to it because we all have experienced the, the benefits of the substitutionary penal atonement, the fact that the ransom was paid and, uh, and Jesus took our place. So that tandem is, is introduced in Scripture in, in so many places. But now what's it doing here? What are these principles doing here? How is the wicked in this picture? How can the wicked be a ransom? So just think about a wicked person and, uh, and yourself, because you're righteous, right? And um, how is the wicked the ransom? And likewise, the treacherous. How can the treacherous be take the place of the upright? It seems a little bit backwards, but actually it's not. It's actually normal. What's backwards is when Jesus, the righteous one, takes the place of the wicked. What's backwards is when uh, Jesus, the, uh, the righteous, dies, pays the ransom for the wicked. So the story of our salvation, the, um, this critical dual principle that I'm talking about that, that, we're, that we embrace and we love and we find so normal, um, this verse actually slaps us upside the head and wakes us up to say, no, what we're accustomed to as normal is actually backwards. 
Christ was the righteous one who paid the ransom for the wicked. Christ is the, um, is the upright one who took the place of the treacherous, the just for the unjust, that his substitutionary atonement on our behalf was, was uh, backwards from what is otherwise normal. So what's otherwise normal, I'm going to show you some of these verses here. What's otherwise normal is we, we can view this uh, passage on an individual basis, we can also view it on a collective basis, we can also view it as how God deals with humanity uh, in uh, corporate senses, as nations for example. If, um, if uh, he has a righteous nation and a wicked nation, which one do you think he's going to pay the price as God rescues the righteous nation? See, well, it's the wicked nation. We'll talk about this as well, because Scripture talks about this. Um, but let's start with the, the, the normal that we're accustomed to. The tandem of ransom and substitution. Uh, Psalm 49, one of my favorites. Psalm 49. You know, I'm, I'm trying to collect a, a grouping of Old Testament soteriological principles. Uh, so uh, if, I, if I was an Old Testament believer trying to lead my children to uh, eternal life, and I don't have John 3.16, I don't have Acts 16.31, I don't have uh, so many of my uh, New Testament go-to passages for, for evangelism or child evangelism, uh, what do I use if all I have are the Hebrew Scriptures to uh, talk to uh, an unbeliever about eternal life? Well, Psalm 49.7 says, No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever. I think it's interesting that under Mosaic law that the Hebrews had a system of redemption whereby a kinsman redeemer uh, was obligated and had the, the blessing to be able to redeem in earthly terms. He could redeem property, he could redeem uh, land that had been sold, he could redeem uh, uh, people from bondage and slavery, he could even uh, raise up a child to the uh, inheritance of a dead brother and, uh, and uh, produce an heir through the widow. And uh, there were a lot of things, principles of redemption were taught in their secular life, in their uh, financial dealings, in their, in their property, land, and so on. The book of Ruth is about this because of the widows there and, and the need to, uh, for Ruth to be redeemed. And, uh, but the idea of redeeming a soul all of that doctrine was taught so that they would learn the principle of the kinsman redeemer. So that they would learn about the Messiah when He comes to crush the serpent's head and to redeem all of humanity from, from sin. And uh, we can't do it because we need to be redeemed ourselves. So how can we redeem another sinner or give to God a ransom for him? The redemption of a soul is costly. He should cease trying forever. You couldn't live long enough to produce redemption for one soul, let alone all of humanity in Adam. Verse 9, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. We're talking about a, an eternal redemption. We're talking about eternal life in the glories of God. Even wise men die, the stupid and the senseless like perish, they leave their wealth to others. I mean, what are we really doing? We have this life, but we should be looking to the next. Man and his pomp will not endure, is like the beasts that perish. 
you get down to verse 15, let's see, as sheep they are appointed to Sheol, death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning, and their form shall be for Sheol to consume, so that they have no habitation. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, He will receive me. It's a great text. I love Psalm 49. I mean, it just really lays out there the issues that this life is preparation for the next. So how am I going to face it? Am I going to get there redeemed or unredeemed? Am I going to be there at the mercy of Sheol or is God going to redeem me from the power of Sheol? Of course, Isaiah 53. Need this for a lot of communion services. This is the picture of our Savior. Who has believed our message? If I'm going to preach the gospel and all I have to work with is the Hebrew canon, the Old Testament text, this is going to be a place I'm going to go to. Because there's a message and faith has to be applied in responding to the message. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For He grew up before Him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. This is uh, the prophecy connected to, of course, our Savior and his humble origins, his childhood, and his growing up. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. This is the only verse in Scripture that ever describes what Jesus Christ looked like. Nowhere in the Gospels are we told. Was he blonde, brunette, redhead, what kind, you know, bald? What did, he, what did he look like? Was he tall, short? What, what did he look like? Give me a physical description of Jesus Christ and not a painting from a Renaissance uh, artist somewhere. All right, tell me what he looked like. We don't know. The only verse anywhere in the Bible that tells us that he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore. This is penal substitution right here. He is taking our place. This is substitutionary. This is what it's about in paying our ransom. So this twin principle, this critical dual principle in Scripture, it applies to Jesus in uh, the righteous for the unrighteous. Surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried, yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He paid the price in our place. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. The wrath of God was poured out on Him. The full, just penalty was poured out on Him, and He accepted it all. All of us like sheep have gone astray. All of us like sheep have gone astray. This is the same verb, by the way, that we had in verse 16 about a man who wanders from the way of understanding. We see that it's the description of humanity that's, that's uh, in, in the consequence of the Adamic fall, that we're all out of God's design. We've gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The iniquity of us all. See, and I don't understand how... <laughs> I mean, they twist it, they try to, the idea of limited atonement versus unlimited atonement that, you know, that, that he didn't pay for the sins of the unbelievers, are you kidding me? He accepted all of it. The price for everybody, whosoever will, may come. 
because the payment has been made. Now, so we're accustomed to that, and, uh, but it's in this context where it's the wicked that becomes the ransom. How can the wicked be the ransom? How does this work? It seems like it's the reverse of what we normally expect. Well, there was an earlier passage in Proverbs 11 that almost said the same thing or almost got to this point. It said something a little bit similar. Proverbs 11, verse 6 and verse 8, The righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the treacherous will be caught by their own greed. All right, so we start to see that there's a principle at work in life, in in how the world operates, and how God um, assigns consequences and results. All right, and this is God's working. This is not um, human viewpoint. This is not the world's uh, theories about fate or karma or what goes around comes around or you get what you, uh, you know, had coming to you. Okay? The world try, it takes God's revealed wisdom and twists it and manipulates it and puts its own spin upon it. Um, we do reap what we sow but because God is the one who does these things. And so God will reward the righteous. God will shine upon the righteous. God will provide for the righteous. As a rule, all other considerations being normal, and the treacherous will be caught by their own greed. God has a way when He administers His judgment that God has a way to not only let them fall into the pit they dug for themselves, but to, uh, to spotlight that. It's, a, it's an object lesson. It's a way that He teaches that the, uh, the, uh, the wicked can look back at the, the bad choices they make and they can say, you know what, I knew better. Or, you know, I was warned about this. Or, or uh, with the hindsight from the Word of God, say, wow, I should, have, uh, I should have listened to the Word and, and not done this. Verse 8 says, The righteous is delivered from trouble, but the wicked takes his place. The wicked takes his place. And this is interesting too because in the context here and in other passages, um, the, what is the trouble that the righteous uh, is, is uh, avoiding? Is it trouble of his own making or trouble that the wicked person is devising on his behalf? That's what it's about. Okay? And the classic story for this is Haman. And, and you see the last verse on the screen here, if I don't get to it before the top of the hour. But Haman, he, he gets hoisted on his own petard. He gets hung on his own gallows. Okay? And, and this is, I think, in the, in the context of this, in both verse 6 and in verse 8, and back in Proverbs 21 where we are this morning, the wicked becoming a ransom means they're paying the price that they themselves were hoping the, the, the righteous were going to pay. Anyway, the, uh, the righteous is delivered from trouble, but the wicked takes his place, falls into the trap that he's setting up. Some other examples of this. Um, 2 Samuel 20, that's a long section, but let's get to that. Second Samuel chapter 20. If you don't know the story here, yeah, this is Sheba, son of Bichri. And um, he's being hunted down. David sent uh, Joab to hunt him down. All right, so he went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, even Beth Makkah, 
to, and uh, the, Bar uh, the Barites, and they were gathered together and also went after him. They came and besieged him in Abel Beth Makkah, and they cast up a siege ramp against the city, and it stood by the rampart, and all the people who were with Joab were wreaking destruction in order to topple the wall. So this Sheba guy is on the run, they're chasing him down, he's hiding in this city, they surround the city, the whole city's going to perish to get this one guy. Because David wants him dead and Joab's going to do what David wants. <laughs> okay. Then a wise woman called from the city. This is almost in the tradition of Abigail. This is a believer with wisdom that's going to speak forth and is going to deliver her people. A wise woman called from the city, Hear, hear, please tell Joab, come here that I may speak with you. So he approached, approached her and the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your maidservant. He said, I'm listening. So she spoke saying, Formerly they used to say, They will surely ask advice at Abel. And thus they ended the dispute. In other words, her hometown here has a reputation. Her hometown here was a source of divine viewpoint, a source of wisdom. That uh, the believers in this town were accustomed to being addressed and, and, and to resolve issues. I am of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You are seeking to destroy a city, even a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? You know, the cost that's going to happen here if this city gets leveled to the ground just for the sake of uh, this one person. So Joab replied, Far be it, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. Such is not the case. But a man from the hill country of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bichri by name, has lifted up his hand against King David. Only hand him over and I will depart from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. <laughs> you know? It's kind of funny too because reading through this whole story, you know, do you have a picture in your mind of, of who this older woman might be? You know, if, you know, she was a woman of wisdom and a woman of, of appropriate words. And I, you know, do you ever get like a like an Ethel Dowd picture in your mind or a Shirley Newton or someone, you know, or Linty? And and then you get to this point, like, all right, I'll get his head chopped off today. Okay, I'm going to throw the head right over the wall. And uh, and she did. This is what happened. His head will be thrown to you over the wall. So the woman wisely came to all the people and they cut off the head of Sheba the son of Bichri and threw it to Joab. You know, look at the influence this woman has. Is she the king? Is she that? No, she's just the, the, the older woman with this kind of wisdom. And when she goes to the people in the town, hey, toss his head over the wall. And they do it. Okay. So he blew the trumpet and they were dispersed from the city, each to his tent. Joab also returned to the king at Jerusalem. All right, happy ending. They lived happily ever after. Now here's the story. So the one man perished on behalf of the others. The one man perished. And he was a wicked man, worthy of death anyway. The king wanted him dead. He's under the, the death sentence. And so he becomes the ransom. He's actually the illustration of what we're seeing here in, in Proverbs 21:18. The wicked is a ransom for the righteous. The treacherous is in the place of the upright. And so the city here, the inhabitants of the city under this woman's wisdom, for them it's a no-brainer. Sure, this guy's got to go so that we are spared. The righteous can be delivered. By the way, <laughs> how do you think God approaches it when He is working on behalf of 
of a righteous nation. When he's, when he's bringing Israel out of Egypt and he's redeeming a people for his own possession and there's a land of flowing with milk and honey right there, a land of idolaters, a land of wicked people that he's been warning them for 400 years to repent and they have not repented for 400 years. And then finally when, when uh, their time is done, their time is done. And so he orders Joshua to go in and kill everybody that breathes and this land is now yours. All right. This is the issue with the conquest. This is the issue. This is not God as a genocidal monster. This is God as a grace uh, shepherd over the affairs of humanity. He's going he's gonna to bless that land with a righteous people instead of the wicked people that have been polluting that land with their idolatry and their murder and their uh, fornications. All right, real quick then, because um, we know these other stories. Isaiah 43, verses 3 and 4. I am the Lord, this is a very parallel to Proverbs 21, 18. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba in your place. Those nations suffered, but they were wicked nations. Israel was blessed because God was blessing His people. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. And then uh, Esther 7.10. Esther 7.10. So they hanged Haman on his own gallows which he had prepared for Mordecai and the king's anger subsided. Again, a great illustration. The wicked who pays the price to save the righteous. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for truth. I thank you for the practical wisdom that we glean. I thank you for this book. And uh, we've been in it over six years now, or almost six years. Almost seven years, goodness. And uh, just thank you for this study. Uh, pray that you continue to shape and direct us as we uh, proceed through this year. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.